Hey there, this is Jeff Otis, Senior Wealth Consultant and Partner at Evergreen GovCal, based out of our Bellevue office, and you're listening to the Evergreen Exchange. The Evergreen Exchange is a podcast that discusses topics related to wealth management, investing, personal finance, macroeconomics. Today, I'm going to be talking with Katie Ludwig. She's an estate planning attorney that I work closely with, and we're going to be discussing the topic of probate. I think you're going to enjoy the conversation and find the information useful. After listening, feel free to reach out to Evergreen with any questions that you have by going to evergreengolfcal.com, or you can just email me at jotis at evergreengolfcal.com. That's J-O-T-I-S at evergreengolfcal.com. Thanks and enjoy the listen. In this episode, Jeff and Katie discuss the importance of working with a professional you trust to move through the probate process efficiently and without making costly errors by skipping over important steps. Let's say you skip step three and simply distribute out the house or distribute out that evergreen account without paying off the mortgage or without paying um, the the DSHS uh, lien that may be on the house. What happens then is those creditors come after the beneficiaries who are not going to be happy that they have received an asset subject to a lien or subject to that encumbrance. And they may come back after the personal representative to sue because they've received an asset they truly or fully can't use. How to shorten the window that creditors may make claims on the estate and potentially save some money. In the state of Washington, once someone passes away, all creditors of the estate then have two years from the date of death to come out of the woodwork and make a claim against the estate. I want that two-year period cut down to four months because I don't want the estate open for two years. Right. Um, Right. I want to make sure that we flush all creditors out of the woodwork because if they don't come forward in that four month period of publication, their claim is forever time barred. So the thinking there is like, we gave public notice, there's four months, you didn't do anything, we're moving on, basically. Exactly. Why not having a will can be exorbitantly costly. If you don't have a will and you have an estate with contentious heirs, you are going to be looking at what could be an astronomical attorney bill. I've got a situation right now where an individual passed away with a will that was not done correctly. The court on its own appointed an administrator to take care of this estate. But now two years later, this attorney has racked up approximately $60,000 of attorney's fees. That is $60,000 into the attorney's pocket that could have otherwise gone to the four children and has not because there is no will. And how having a will may save a person's heirs from court drama and chaos. On the complete other end of the spectrum, Jeff, is I just finished probate for an estate that took about 10 months to do and the end bill was about $2,900, $3,000. That was an example where there were four children, but we had a will Everybody got along and required very little attorney supervision or intervention. And in that case, it's really easy to cheaply probate an estate. And if you own property in multiple states, this conversation is a must listen. Putting assets in a trust can make sense for multiple reasons, but it prevents a situation where probate must be handled and paid for in each state. What happens if you have assets in a trust when it comes to probate? Yes, yes. So if you have assets in a trust, you don't have to go through probate. That's the biggest difference between a trust and having a will or having to go through probate, which is 
If you're going through probate, it's because you have to change the title of the assets from the deceased person's name to the estate name and then to the beneficiaries. All right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you being here. This is Jeff Otis, Evergreen GovCal uh, partner. I've got Katie Ludwig with me today, an estate attorney I work very closely with. She works at the Ludwig Law Group in Bellevue. Katie, welcome. Jeff, good morning. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. How's, uh, how's summer starting off for you so far? Uh, summer is fantastic. Of course, you know, here in Washington State, it always seems like it waits to start until after July 4th. And it's really interesting to be out and about in what could be 80 or 90 degree weather wearing a mask. Uh, <laughs> That's true. It, it's a different, right? It's a different feel when we've got COVID-19 concerns floating around. But we're soldiering on. We're, you know, we, we just adapt and move on and do what we need to do to, to keep meeting with clients safely and hygienically. And how's, uh, how's your golden doodle doing? Good. So, so for those of you listening, I am the proud mother of a nine-month-old golden doodle named Gracie. If you hear any barking in the background, I apologize. That's her trying to get my attention. I have shut her out of my office. Um, but again, just one of those changes we kind of have to make during these times of having the dogs around or maybe if you have kids and having the kids around and just making the best of that world. Yeah, so I'm recording here from from the house in Woodenville. We've got four kids. So again, if there's any uh, if there's any background noise, that's that's one of the four. We've got a, a ten year old, five year old, two year old, and seven month old. So Whew. I told them all we're going to be doing this, and hopefully uh, we're able to get through for the next fifteen twenty minutes or so. But okay. today, uh, jumping right into it, we're talking probate. So kind of probate one hundred and one for those of you that listened to our webinar together about a month and a half, two months ago, uh, kind of right when all the lockdown started, uh, maybe it was in three months ago, that's how quickly this has gone. Um, we were talking through estate planning, kind of estate planning 101, and the topic of probate came up. Uh, and even kind of mid webinar, we were like, you know what, we should do a follow up on that. Um, and here we are. So today's podcast is going to be sort of probate 101 with uh, someone I work very closely with. So let's just start off right out of the gates with what is probate? Jeff, the legal dictionary definition of probate is snoozeworthy, and it is the legal process through which property and other assets transfer from a deceased person to that deceased person's beneficiaries. And in layman's terms, what that means is the process by which your stuff goes to other people after your death, um, which is a little bit easier to say, but perhaps more morbid than the legal dictionary term. But the general idea is probate is how you move assets from your estate after you've passed away to, say, your kids or your spouse or whomever it is that you want to inherit it. Um, and you have two ways to figure out who inherits your property. You either have a will, which says, for example, everything goes to my surviving spouse or everything goes to my kids or everything goes to the hospital or the church, um, or you don't have a will. And if you pass away without a will in place, you are intestate, which is just, again, a legal term that means no will, which means we look to the intestate laws of the state of Washington to find out who actually gets your stuff. And as my father, who is also an attorney, likes to say, if you don't have a will, the state of Washington provides one for you. So, <laughs> so that's one reason why we always in, 
encourage clients to have a will is because we'd rather you have a say in figuring out or in dictating who gets your assets as opposed to the state of Washington stepping in to make those decisions for you. Sure, sure. It's interesting in my conversations with, with clients. I mean, sometimes you hear the like, oh, you know, who cares? Like, you know, it'll go to the kids or it'll go to them once, once I'm gone. Uh, and others realize, you know, I really should be involved with setting this up correctly and making sure, uh, you know, it's, it's just different, different perspective from different people. So how would you say probate works? Like, so like, yeah, how does probate work? Okay. So if I were to break it down, I would describe probate as having five distinct steps. So the very first step is simply opening probate. And what that means in today's world right now, if you have a will, is you've got to figure it out. You've got to figure out how to get that will filed in, let's say, King County Superior Court, either in Seattle or Kent. You've got to file the necessary paperwork where you ask the court to admit the will to probate and get whomever is named in the will as personal, a personal representative to actually act as personal representative. And Jeff, again, I apologize. I should probably pause right there. If someone has a will, it means they have probably named someone to act as their executor or personal representative. And in today's world, those terms mean the exact same thing. The only difference is one is gender neutral, personal representative. The other one, executor, is older, kind of sounds old English or medieval. And if you're a man, you're an executor. If you're a female or a woman, you're, you're executrix. Um, we just use the general neutral terms these days in our documents as personal representative. But regardless, the very first step, if you have a will, you got to open probate. You got to be able to use the will. And that's, there's a lot of steps involved, but the very first one is you've got to get a court to admit your will is valid and you've got to get the personal representative appointed as the personal representative. Um, after opening probate, the court, if it has admitted the will and appointed someone as personal representative or gone along with your request to appoint that person as personal representative, the personal representative is issued by the clerk of the court a one-page piece of paper with the esoteric name of letters testamentary. It's this single piece of paper that I know, for example, Evergreen would require before right? Having to make any changes to an account that has to go through probate, right? You would want that letters testamentary on file. Yep. So you would say that's step two? Yep. That's, that's step two, which is part of the exact, the personal representative then uses that letters testamentary to figure out, okay, what are the assets in the estate? What did the deceased person own, right? If they own a house, fantastic. You probably have to get that valued or put it on the market. If there's an estate, if, or excuse me, if there's an account at Evergreen, right, Jeff, they're going to be contacting you to get what's called a date of death valuation because That's we right. need to figure out, we need to figure out exactly how much the estate was worth on the day that person passed away. It's like a snapshot in time because that is what is used to figure out if any federal or Washington estate tax is owed, which is a whole nother subject for a whole nother podcast. So I'm not even going to go into that, but Step two but we is, will, we will, but we will, we will. Don't worry. Stay tuned, everyone. Um, but this step number two is using those letters, letters testamentary to marshal all the assets together and compile an inventory so we can see exactly what we're working with asset wise, because step number three is you've got to settle all debts. You have to figure out what liabilities are out there and you have to figure out how those will be settled or negotiated or paid. Um, the most obvious debts that we see usually encumber houses, 
mortgages, right? So for example, if a parent passes away and leaves a, a house in Bellevue that still has a mortgage on it, well, usually the house has to be sold to pay the mortgage and then whatever is left over is distributed to the beneficiaries of that person's estate. Um, but in Washington state, you have to be very careful, careful about settling all these debts because let's say you skip this part of the process. Let's say you skip step three and simply distribute out the house or distribute out that evergreen account without paying off the mortgage or without paying um, the, DAS, the DSHS uh, lien that may be on the house. What happens then is those creditors come after the beneficiaries who are not going to be happy that they have received an asset subject to a lien or subject to that encumbrance. And they may come back after the personal representative to sue because they've received an asset they truly or fully can't use. So number three is pretty important because you've got to clear all debt which then paves the way for step number four, which is distributing out what is left to the heirs of the estate. And if you've got a will, your will is the document that says who gets what. It, and that's why having a will is so important because there's no doubt as to what you intended a person to receive. If you don't have a will, again, the state of Washington steps in and says, if you passed without a will, then here's who gets what. And in which case, if it's community property, if all you own is community property and you are survived by your spouse, all community property goes to the surviving spouse. If you have some separate property, the state of Washington says surviving spouse gets 50% and the rest is split equally between your children. If there's no surviving spouse, it goes to your children. And Jeff, this is the next step part that I want to make sure everyone hears because this is, I think, where people have a different idea of what might actually happen. Let's say you pass away and you do not have a spouse, you do not have children. At that point, the intestate laws of the state of Washington actually look up to see if your parents are alive. And if your parents are alive, your estate will then flow upwards to your parents and they inherit everything. And Jeff, I always find that so interesting because I have a sister and before I ever got into estate planning, my immediate thought was, well, if something happened to me, obviously my estate would go to my sister. That makes sense. She were 18 months apart. I would want her to have what I have. And once I went to law school, once I became an estate planning attorney to learn, oh no, my, it would go back up to my parents. I thought, well, they don't need that. So, <laughs> right. Not, it's, which not is, so which obviously, is huh? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So, which is, again, I want to make sure if, for me personally, that I have a will at least because I don't want my estate going to my parents right now. They, they simply don't need it. Um, and so that's it's step a good point. Is, I mean, I would just say yeah. that's a really good point. I remember hearing that for the first time myself and being like, wait, seriously, like that's seriously the way it works. So yes. uh, yeah, no, I think that's really, really important to, to point out. Yeah. And then, so that's step four is distributing out to the heirs who are the people who inherit. And then step five is simply closing the estate. You file paperwork with the court, which tells the court, I have done my job as the personal representative of the estate. I have settled all debts with these creditors. And you actually list out the creditors. And then you list out um, or you include receipts, ideally from beneficiaries or heirs, which tell the court that everyone has received what they're supposed to receive from the estate and you file the paperwork with the court and 30 days later if no one comes forward with an objection the estate is closed and you can go on your merry way that's pretty much it that's probate 
That's good. That's good. It's a good, helpful overview of the process. Uh, uh, as you're going through it, you talked about what, what you described as personal representative. I just want to pick that part out really quick. How does that get, how does the personal representative get chosen? Um, you know, like who would you want potentially as your personal representative? And is there anything that you'd want to avoid there? Like any tips that you give clients of situations where you've seen things go wrong or, or uh, mistakes made that you'd want to avoid? Anything you'd want to drill in on that? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. So um, the personal representative there, if you have a will, you have already chosen your personal representative usually. Because if, you're, if you've been working with an estate plan attorney, they will force you to choose the personal representative. And in fact, they will probably force you to choose not only one personal representative, but then several backups who can step in and serve if that first named personal representative can't act. If you don't have a will, then the state of Washington again provides a list of who is first named or the order of priority of who can serve as your personal representative. So for example, if you're married, then your spouse has the first right to serve as personal representative. If no spouse, it could be one of your kids. Um, but when we meet with clients, Jeff, and we talk to them about who do you want to have named as personal representative, one of the conversations that we walk clients through is out of your close family circle or maybe close sphere of friends, who has the skills to act as personal representative? That's the number one priority. We wanna make sure that the personal representative is someone who is ideally organized, or if not organized, knows that they're not organized and has the wherewithal to hire someone or work with someone who can help them get organized, right? I'm sure you see this all the time with clients, Jeff, right? Like you have clients who maybe know that managing money is not their strong suit, which is why they've come to you, which, a lot of times demonstrates um, a good self-awareness about one's own, one, one's own limitations and capabilities. Right. Yep. And, and so that's, that's the number one thing that we say to clients is, especially if they have children, look, don't feel as though you need, need to name Tommy, who is the oldest child, as personal representative. Because if Tommy lives in Virginia, or if Tommy is not someone who has demonstrated he's good at staying organized or managing money or has terrible relationships with the rest of the family members, Tommy's not a good option. Because first of all, Tommy might have to have a little bit more of a boots on the ground presence in Washington to figure out exactly where all your assets are. And then Tommy also has got to compile this inventory, don't remember. And if he's not organized, he may not be able to do so in a very timely fashion. But maybe most importantly, <laughs> If Tommy has already demonstrated that he will pick fights with siblings or aunts and uncles and is already abrasive and is not going to do what's in the best interest of the estate or the beneficiaries of the estate, Tommy's not a good option, regardless of where he falls in the pecking order of your children. So right. that is the, that's the first conversation we have with clients is whoever you name as personal representative, the most important thing is that you match up the person named with where they fall in the order of personal representative, right? So if you've got a daughter who's local, who's a CPA, who gets along with all of her siblings and all of your family, boom, great choice, even if she's the youngest daughter. Yep. Um, so that's tip number one, Jeff. And then tip number two, and where we've seen clients run into issues is 
they can't make a decision and so they name all four children as personal representative. Um, this is not ideal because it means, at least on the initial paperwork and the closing paperwork, you've got to get four different sets of signatures on the paperwork just to get the will admitted. And Evergreen, for example, might require four different sets of signatures on the paperwork just to set up an estate account. Having that many people involved in the process as co-personal representatives can be inefficient. It can slow things down. Um, and more importantly, if you've got an even number named, if you've got either two co-personal representatives named or four, you have to have a tiebreaker. What if it's one against one? What if it's two against two? Who is the family member or friend who is going to step in to break a log jam? Because if there's no such tiebreaker included, the uh, referee is going to be the court, which will cost time and money just to get into court to have the court say no on a particular course of action or yes. So we always encourage families ideally to probably pick one personal representative, but if they feel strongly about having more than one, we always want to make sure we include that tiebreaker. So if you have kids, can it make sense uh, to have a non-family member as your personal representative? I mean, how often do you see that it's a family member versus a non-family member? I would say for younger families, we see this all the time. And by younger families, I mean where the kids are probably under the age of 30. We see a lot of close friends or business associates or even cousins who... Or, or siblings, right? A lot of times it's, it's the person's sister or brother who serve as the personal representative instead because the idea is that you don't really want to name your 21-year-old son to be personal representative, right? Think about at 21 what you might have going on in your life. Not only right. do you have to deal with like a parent's passing, but you're probably also in college or figuring out where to live or trying to find your first job. And that's just a lot to ask for a 21-year-old. So yeah, I mean, Jeff, we absolutely see older family members or very close family friends being named in this role, I would say, until the kids get into their 30s or 40s. I would think that in a, in, in a follow-up discussion with anyone that wants to go through this, like just figuring out their own situation and talking through what, who would make sense, who wouldn't make sense, uh, would, make, would make a ton of sense there. But that's yeah. helpful in terms of general overview. I mean, the goal of this podcast is to is to keep it more 101 and, and leave room for if there's follow-up questions that anyone has to go further into the weeds. So I think that's a really good overview on personal representative. Um, back to the process of probate, timeline on that, like how long does it typically take? I hear this all the time from people that haven't gone through it. Like it seems very daunting and it seems very long. It, uh, give some give, give an idea of, of the process. Timeline. Yes. Okay, so the short answer is I run probate through as quickly as five months. Um, I have seen, I haven't done this, but I've seen a probate that because of a very, a very specific reason lasted 10 years. Um, but that was a conscious choice of all parties involved given what had to be done in that probate. I would say that probably the average length of probate is maybe 10 months. And the reason probate lasts that long is because in the state of Washington, once someone passes away, all creditors of the estate then have two years from the date of death to come out of the woodwork and make a claim against the estate. So that means, right, if you, 
if someone passes away or, or if you open probate, you could be sitting around for two years just to wait for the window washer from, you know, two weeks before dad died to come forward with an invoice to make sure that that is paid. Um, thankfully, the state of Washington can shorten that two-year window down to four months if you file what's called probate notice to creditors in an accredited local daily journal. So here in King County, we quite often use the Seattle Daily Journal of Commerce. Um, you file this probate notice to creditors, and what that does is it cuts the two-year period down to four months. So when I say that I talked about um, probate running for five months, what I mean by that is we got all the paperwork open, and within a week of having probate open, I arranged for this probate notice to creditors to be filed in the Seattle Daily Journal of Commerce. The reason being, I want that two-year period cut down to four months because I don't want the estate open for two years. Right. Um, Right. I want to make sure that we flush all creditors out of the woodwork, because if they don't come forward in that four month period of publication, their claim is forever time barred. Right. They lose the ability to bring any sort of claim against the estate. So open probate on date one. Within a week, I've got pub the probate notice to creditors filed. We wait for the four month period to run to make sure there's no liens or mortgages or credit card debt out there. And then after that four month period runs, we use the final month to finalize the inventory, get the assets distributed and get the estate closed. Um, so the thinking there is like, we gave public notice, there's four months, you didn't do anything, we're moving on, basically. Exactly, exactly. And that's why Washington's really got a nice streamlined process for probate. Because for example, I know in California, it is a lengthy process. It lasts at least a year. I don't know if they have that equivalent four month shortened timeline for creditors to come forward. But here in Washington, the great thing about it is it really can take that two-year time frame down to four months, which means, again, we can get probate open and closed if it's not complicated or contentious within about five or six months. Okay. Well, that leads me to the next question on this. I think that's a pretty good overview on that. Um, okay. How to avoid probate and should you avoid probate? And I'm asking this because you and I are currently working with a client right now to avoid probate in another state. Um, but I just want to get into that topic because now that we know what probate is and what the process is like, could it make sense? Should, and should clients look into avoiding probate where they can? So let's yes. talk about that. Absolutely. Okay. So um, if you're listening to this in Washington state and your net worth is under $2 million and you rent and only have accounts in your name, there is no reason that you should have to go through probate because you can avoid probate by naming beneficiaries on all non-probate assets. And Jeff, I apologize, I should have explained this probably in the beginning, but when I talk about a non-probate asset that literally is an asset that does not go through probate in order to be distributed to its intended beneficiaries, and the best example of non-probate assets are, for example, retirement accounts, IRAs, or checking accounts, or life insurance policies. And what these all have in common is that you are usually required to name beneficiaries on your IRA, or your brokerage account, or life insurance. And what that means then is upon your death, if you've got beneficiaries named on those assets, all your beneficiary has to do is to present a death certificate to say Evergreen or to whomever holds your life insurance. 
and typically they will automatically transfer the asset from the deceased person's name into a new account that you've set up or you know write you a check for the life insurance proceeds and you can do whatever you want with it so that's a non-probate asset you don't have to go through probate for that um, so but jeff the most common probate asset or the asset that requires probate in order to pass title and that gives it away right there but the best example is real property right if you own a house if you own a condo or a townhome, then you are going to have to go through probate upon your death if you are usually leaving it to anyone other than your surviving spouse. So if you're leaving your Bellevue townhome to your kids, you are likely going to have to go through probate in order for your three children to have the ability to either sell the house and take the proceeds of that sale or inherit the house in their own individual names um so i probably got a little bit off track i think from oh, the no, original helpful. question Jeff. I think that's helpful so but, uh, so so then let's is there a way to avoid probate for assets that are like a house or or other assets that you can think of that would be considered probate assets yes so there is there is a way to avoid it's very easy to avoid probate again here in Washington state upon the death of the first spouse. If that means that there's a surviving spouse and that is because we're a community property state and in Washington state, the presumption is that all property acquired during the marriage is community property. And in Washington state, all community property automatically vests in the surviving spouse, which means you don't technically really need to do anything upon the death of the first spouse in order to have the surviving spouse inherit the house. Um, there are some things that ideally should probably be done. Just make sure you have a death certificate. If you've got a community property agreement, you should record it on the death of the first spouse. But probate is not required at that, at that time. But let's say then the surviving spouse passes away and still owns this house. Now the question is, do we have to go through probate? Well. If there's one child, the answer is conceivably no, because in some instances, a title company in the course of the sale of real property is willing to insure around not going through probate. Typically what that involves is everyone who's an heir of the estate. So if there's a will, you point to that and say, well, look, I'm the only son or I'm the only daughter, I inherit everything. So you're on the only signature that you need. Um, if there's more than one child, then you've got to make sure you get every child's signature by the title company. And all that happens is everyone signs off on the sale. The title company issues a policy that um, says that they have the ability to sign off on the sale. And again, you can pay for this title report and or title insurance as a way of avoiding probate during the sale of this real property. Um, this avoiding probate, Jeff, through this course of action depends on finding a title company who will issue that sort of policy right. and also depends on everyone agreeing to sign off on it, right? If you've got four kids and one of them doesn't agree with the sale of dad's house and won't sign the, the paperwork, it's, it's just not going to work. Sure. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the way to avoid probate when it comes to real property. Um, let's see the other, Oh, the other way to avoid probate, not for real property, but let's say there's like a $50,000 checking account. In Washington state, you can use what's called a small estate affidavit, which is, again, all of the heirs have to sign off on this paperwork and agree with the distribution 
and then you take this affidavit to the bank, for example, or to you, Evergreen, and the bank is the one that says, okay, we accept it and we'll get this where it needs to go. So those are kind of the two ways to avoid probate from two very different sorts of assets. Okay. Um, you asked Jeff if there were any instances where you might want to go through probate. And the answer is yes. If you have a taxable estate, and what I mean by that is in Washington, if you die with an estate that is greater than $2,193,000, or if you're living outside the state of Washington and have an estate that is greater than uh, $11.4 million, your estate here in Washington, again, it's back to the $2,193,000, if greater than that, you will owe estate tax to the state. And you may want to go through probate to make sure that that estate tax is paid. If you don't go through probate, and if an estate tax is due and owing, either the state of Washington or the federal government, well, now you've got both entities coming after your heirs or beneficiaries uh, to ask with their handout to ask for the money that is owed. And so a probate is a good way to settle those debts and tax liabilities before anything is passed on to your heirs and beneficiaries, because that way you're not passing on that liability to them. Yeah, that makes sense. It's like a way of netting everything out and making sure that it's streamlined for them moving forward. Exactly. And what's really interesting, Jeff, and I don't know if you've seen this, but We've got a lot of, we're seeing a lot of clients come in who may have very large IRAs and simply by the value of the IRA, they're already being pushed over the Washington state, a state tax limit of $2,193,000. Well, you can't really break apart an IRA upon someone's death to get the cash out to pay the estate tax liability. So then this is why working with you is such a joy because you've got the red flag up and you know, okay, well, how do we plan for paying that tax? What other assets are there to make sure that we're not putting this burden on the children to come up with cash in an otherwise illiquid estate that's got a really heavy IRA? Um, so those are some, again, those are some issues that we are seeing right now, which is there's a Washington state estate tax liability simply by virtue of having a large IRA. How do we prepare for that? Yep. What linked to this is like, what happens if you have a trust? and you have assets in a trust when it comes to probate. Yes, yes. So if you have assets in a trust, you don't have to go through probate. And the reason being, when you pass away, if your assets are in trust, you've already got a document that controls what happens to the assets, right? Because you've already got all the assets in a trust which say everything in this trust is managed by a trustee. And that's where that's the biggest difference between a trust and having a will or having to go through probate, which is if you're going through probate, it's because you have to change title of the assets from the deceased person's name to the estate name and then to the beneficiaries. Whereas in a trust, everything's already been retitled into the trust. So if you pass away, that doesn't matter because technically you don't own the assets at that point. The trust does. And then all that matters is the next trustee steps in to administer that trust as needed according to the terms of the agreement and get those assets where they need to go or divvy up the trust or settle estate tax liability. So I think I've used the sporting analogy before, Jeff, of, you know, if you have to go through probate, you've got a will, 
And it means that you're managing a basketball team and to go through probate, you've got to get all the players on the floor so that they can actually play the game. And the difference between that and having a trust is you've already got all the players on the court, right? In a trust, you've already got the players on the court ready to play. You don't have to go through probate to get them there. And so a trust is a great option if you are well and truly intent on avoiding probate, particularly if you have property in a state outside of Washington, such as California. So that's a really good option for using a trust or why a trust might be a fantastic priority or option for you. So you see quite often with clients that live in Washington, but maybe have second homes or vacation homes out of state that you would want to put the vacation or the second home in trust? Yes, that would be the first recommendation that we make to a client that walks into our office and says, oh, I have a vacation, I have a, you know, I have a vacation home in Palm Desert, or I'm a snowbird and have a place in Sun Valley, Idaho. And the reason being, if we didn't advise them to put that property in trust, and they pass away, and at that time, they still own the Sun Valley house, and they still own their condo here in, in Bellevue, we have to probate not only here in King County, Washington, But then we've also got a probate over in Idaho in Blaine County to uh, get the title of that Sun Valley home passed to the beneficiaries or to get the property sold. So then you're paying for the cost and expense of two probates, one in Washington State and one in Idaho. Whereas if you put that Sun Valley property into a trust, you can avoid probate in Idaho because, again, the trust document will dictate upon your death what happens with that Sun Valley property. Yeah. And I think maybe as a follow-up there, individually, just anyone that's listening to this that has questions on, hey, wait, what about my situation? Just reach out, right? Reach out. Let's look over your your, uh, your financial picture and see where your assets are. And, and I'm sure Katie's happy to provide some advice of what, what can make sense. Absolutely. If you are listening to this podcast and you're a Washington resident and own any real property in any other state, and that property is not in a trust, uh, please call Jeff or please call me because that's an issue that can be really easily avoided by putting in place a simple property trust to ideally avoid probate in two states upon your death. So maybe two last questions here and then, and then we'll wrap things up. Uh, this has been great so far. I appreciate all your insights into this area. Um, how important is titling? So oh, Jeff, so important. So Let's this and where we see this come up a lot is um, let's say, for example, a client has been recently divorced, comes in and updates their will. Fantastic. Or, you know, they got this, you know, they update their will and we send them on their merry way with instructions. Hey, you need to contact Jeff at Evergreen to change the beneficiaries on your account because you're newly divorced and your will says now that everything you own goes to cousin Larry. Well, Let's say that client never gets around to changing the account and instead it's split between uh, he's got beneficiaries named on the account naming ex-wife and the children of ex-wife. Well, if client passes away, even though the will says everything goes to cousin Larry, it's going to be a fight over that beneficiary designation form, which is going to rule the day and, and you know, get this, the assets distributed out to spouse or the children Unless someone raises a fuss and says, no, the surviving spouse does not inherit, they were divorced, she should be treated as having deceased him. But again, that's a fight. That is something that would have to be played out in court because I imagine, Jeff, ever if Evergreen got involved in that situation, you would say, oh, 
we need a court order to tell us what to do, right? It's not enough for ex-wife to step in and say, I get it. And it's not enough for cousin Larry to step in and say, well, the will says this. Evergreen to be on the safe side would probably say, we need a court order. So the, re the way to avoid that sort of dispute and the confrontation is you've got to make sure if your will says everything goes to cousin Larry, that on the account at Evergreen, the beneficiary of your $1 million brokerage account is cousin Larry. Because if your beneficiary designation form says anything else, that designation form is going to rule the day unless there is a very expensive, very inefficient court fight about why that beneficiary designation form is, is wrong. Yep. So and I see it all the time. Um, yeah. And the most painful part on that is it's so easy to change. I mean, it, Correct. it takes like yeah. 14 seconds to update. Uh, and yeah. most of the time you can do it online. And so I've been in a habit for years now of whenever I meet with clients, just double checking beneficiaries, double checking idling. And sometimes it's like, Hey, we just did this last time. And it's like, I know, but I just want to be, I just want to be super, super safe that everything still looks right. Um, because like you said, life changes, uh, things happen. And it, I just think it makes a ton of sense to continue to review that and make sure it's listed as it should be. Absolutely. And Jeff, if I can jump in briefly there, just with a point of emphasis for retirement accounts, because um, I don't know if you've ever met with a client who may have a retirement account, and maybe was kind of lackadaisical about, well, I'll get around to naming my kids. I don't know how I want to split up the IRA percentage wise. And at the end of the day, they may walk out of your office. No, you would not let them walk out of your office, actually, without naming beneficiaries. And the reason being, if an IRA has no beneficiaries named, that means that the default beneficiary is the owner's estate. So when the owner dies, that the IRA has to fall into the person's estate via the probate process to get distributed out to that person's heirs. And at that point, if someone inherits an IRA from an estate, that person has five years to distribute all of that IRA to him or herself. So, you know, there's a whole other conversation about how we've recently lost stretch out provisions with IRAs, but at the very least, you've got a worst case scenario, scenario there if you don't name beneficiaries on your account of someone having to take all of your IRA within five years of inheriting it. So please, if you're listening to this, name beneficiaries on your retirement accounts. Do us all, do us all a favor. Yeah. And I second that for sure. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. That, yeah. Uh, yeah. Clients hear that from me all the time. Um, final question here. And it, it came up earlier. I was going to ask it, but I want to make sure that we addressed it. What kind of expenses and fees are typically involved in, in a probate process? Um, what's reasonable and what are the, th what, you know, what are some situations where it can get rather costly and clients may not really even realize how costly it can become? Oh, let me answer that question first, Jeff, because I think it's the most interesting. Um, if you don't have a will and you have an estate with contentious heirs, with kids that do not get along, you are going to be looking at what could be an astronomical attorney bill or attorney's fees for the estate. I've got a situation right now where a, um, an individual passed away with a will that was not done correctly. So at the end of the day, it was not admitted to probate. So then we're working with the intestate laws of the state of Washington. And because the will was not admitted 
the court on its own appointed an administrator to take care of this estate, this attorney. Nobody knew the attorney. Nobody asked for the attorney to be appointed. But now, two years later, this attorney has racked up approximately $60,000 of attorney's fees in a state where the single asset was appraised at $350,000. So that is $60,000 into the attorney's pocket that could have otherwise gone to the four children and has not because there is no will, because people aren't getting along. And so that is the worst case scenario that I have seen at the cost of an estate. Um, on the complete other end of the spectrum, Jeff, is you know how I talked about kind of the average length of time for probate is maybe nine to 10 months. Uh, I was just checking my records here as we were talking and I just finished probate for an estate that took about 10 months to do and the end bill was about $2,900, $3,000. So that was an example where there were four children, but we had a will, everybody got along and the house that needed to be sold, the person who was personal representative just got their letters testamentary, did their job, required very little attorney supervision or intervention. And in that case, it's really easy to cheaply probate an estate. So um, yeah, I can't, I, I can't, for those of you listening, again, if you are interested in saving your children or your spouse or your family time and energy and heartbreak and money, get a will. Make sure the will is done properly. Make sure you work with someone like Jeff to make sure beneficiaries are named on your accounts because all of that work is prophylactic. The point of all that work is to make it easier on your family after you're gone to settle your affairs. Because the last thing you want when someone is dealing with grief and the unexpected loss of a beloved family member, well, suddenly then you've got to deal with also money. It is a terrible combination unless you can put down ground rules in the form of a will and beneficiary designations that support that will. So that would be, I hope, the largest takeaway from our entire podcast here today, Jeff. Yeah, no, and I think this has been really helpful. Uh, and, and, and if anything, uh, just helps lead to, if there's follow-up, absolutely reach out. I mean, you can reach out to me and I can set it up with Katie. Um, that's a very easy, easy way of doing it. Katie and I talk if not daily, weekly, we have, a, a, we have a quite a few clients that we're helping together. Um, and she's been really, really good to work with. Um, so yeah, I trust Katie tremendously. I really appreciate all her insights and guidance in this area. Um, and the clients that I've had to work with her have come back and said, wow, like very impressive. She gets back right away. Um, I'm glad that we went through it. And how many situations have I, have I pulled you in to just review things, you know, like, Hey, they do have a will, but can I just have you take a second look and make sure that everything looks right. And how many times have you caught stuff where it's like, Oh man, they should know about this, this, and this, and clients typically don't even realize. So love having you involved, appreciate all your time. Um, the last part, maybe I would add in, in terms of like emphasis is there's so many times where I've talked to clients and they have plans, meaning they've talked it out. Uh, and they know what they want to do, but they haven't actually executed it. Right. And so right. like there's the final step of you have to get it done. Uh, even if you know what you want to do, you know, take that final step and make sure it's, it's, uh, it's good to go. 
Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And and Jeff, if I can just jump in there, you know, the, the case I was talking about with the $60,000 of attorney's fees, in that instant, the gentleman, he executed this will the day before he died. And what was wrong with it is the witnesses signed in the wrong place, right? It's just little, it was the sort of thing where they probably got the will off LegalZoom. They got 90% of the way there and they fell right before the finish line. And it has cost so much money as a result. Um, and I, I just have to echo your thoughts there. Just do the work, get it done because you are saving so much in the long run. Well, with that, um, appreciate your time again. Thanks for all this. Uh, I know that we're going to be doing other podcasts in the future on various topics in the estate planning world, but for an overview on probate and probate 101, I thought this was really helpful. Um, so again, thanks. Thanks for, for doing this. Um, go, uh, go have some fun with, with Gracie and we'll be in touch uh, down the road. Perfect. Thanks so much, Jeff. Jeff, it's been a pleasure. Enjoy, uh, enjoy all four kids in this beautiful weather. All right. Take care. Right. Bye. The Evergreen Exchange is a podcast by Evergreen GovCal. In this episode, senior wealth consultant and partner Jeff Otis interviewed Washington-based estate planning attorney Katie Ludwick on the topic of probate. This episode gave details and tips on how to navigate probate in Washington State, but listeners in Oregon, California, and other states will want to connect with an estate planner practicing in their location. Evergreen also has offices in Portland, San Francisco, and Napa, where we would be happy to connect you with an attorney that we trust and recommend. If you are interested in working with Jeff Otis or Katie Ludwick, please visit our site, evergreengk.com, and take the prospective client compatibility survey at the top of the page. We review each individually and we will reach out. Thank you for listening and we hope you'll tune in again.